So, Sunday night, after practicing together for three days, some of us five, anyway, seven days, and um, we've looked at the possibility that it's already here, and the relevance of balance. It's like balanced mind is what opens the door to what's already here. And understanding cessation of dukkha, dukkha and the end of dukkha. The Buddha, as you know, said that I could teach many things. And he pointed to all the leaves in the tree of the forest, and the trees in the forest. He said, you know, I could teach many things but I only teach a few things, like the few leaves I have in my hand. And why is that? Because the only thing that's relevant is dukkha, suffering, and the end of suffering. And this is really, this is a tough sell for us because of our imaginations, all the possibilities, all the ways we imagine being happy. It's really hard to be interested in dukkha and the end of dukkha. We really, unfortunately, I think, have to be exhausted by it all. It's a funny section. I think it's in, let's see, Ajahn Chah's book where he talks about letting go. And he gives, a, I think, a very apt metaphor for that. This is his book again, Food for the Heart. It's really a nice collection of um, Ajahn Chah's teachings. And this is one of the ones that's uh, formally published, so it's not a monastery book. So you can get it from Wisdom Publications. So this is the chapter, The Training of the Heart. And here he's, ta- he's talking about letting go. The teaching that people least understand and which conflicts most with their own opinions is the teaching of letting go or of working with empty mind, an empty mind. This way of talking is called Dharma language. When we conceive this in worldly terms, we become confused and think that we can do whatever we want. It can be interpreted this way, but its real meaning is closer to this. It's as if we're carrying a heavy rock And after a while, we begin to feel its weight, but we don't know how to let it go. So we endure this heavy burden all the time. If someone tells us to throw it away, we say, if I throw it away, I won't have anything left. If we hear of all the benefits to be gained from throwing it away, we don't believe them, but keep thinking, if I throw it away, I will have nothing. So we keep on carrying this heavy rock till we become so weak and exhausted that we can no longer endure it. Then we drop it. Having dropped it, we suddenly experience the benefit of letting go. We immediately feel better and lighter, and we know for ourselves how much a burden carrying a rock can be. Before we let go of the rock, we couldn't possibly know the benefits of letting go. So if someone tells us to let go, an unenlightened person wouldn't see the point of it. They would just blindly clutch at the rock and refuse to let go until it becomes it became so unbearably heavy 
that they just had to let go. Then they would feel for themselves the lightness and relief and thus know the benefits of letting go. Later on, we may start carrying burdens again, but now we know what the results will be so we can let go more easily. This understanding that it's useless to carry burdens around and that letting go brings ease and lightness is is an example of knowing ourselves. You know, part of that uh, sense of not wanting to let go, like really being attracted to our likes and dislikes, really being identified and attached to our likes and dislikes, it's a kind of idealism and a kind of arrogance where we are certain that we know where happiness lies. And it, of course, it's in light of failing to realize a sustained happiness our whole life long, yet we're certain we know what we're doing around this thing called happiness. You know, clinging to what we cling to. I noticed not that long ago, I took a little walk, a break from preparing the talk tonight. I was just walking along the driveway. I noticed toward the end, my mind started to fantasize uh, about something exciting. And um, you know, it's just interesting. In a few seconds, I noticed what was happening, maybe even almost immediately, that it was exactly as Ajahn Chah was suggesting. You know, I didn't want to hear about the heavy rock. It was so interesting, so intoxicating, the possibility that I just completely constructed in my mind. It wasn't based on anything. And... Uh, you know, I was even, I've put down the rock, so I, I have some faith. And not only that, I was able to feel, even as I was enchanted by the fantasy, I was even able to feel the pain, the weight, right then. So it wasn't like I was so engrossed in the fantasy that I wasn't even aware of the underlying oppressive burden of that mind state. So we have to have a lot of respect for the enchantment, the idealism of the mind. One of the early Dharma books I read was actually written by a Swami, Swami Venkatasananda, an Indian man who taught a little in India, but mostly in South Africa. He died, I think, in the 70s, 1970s. And uh, he wrote a wonderful book called Multiple Reflections about Dharma, really. And uh, near the end of that book, he had a line and a a paragraph, but a particular line that really rocked my world. And I kept going back to it for years and years, rereading that particular section. And basically, I mean, he elaborated it, but basically he was saying, whenever there's hope, there's fear. You can't have hope for something good without having the rock, being burdened by the rock. There's just no way to have hope without fear. And somehow, for some reason, as I was reflecting on this, I recalled um, an essay that Mary Oliver wrote 
Yeah, but she has a collection, at least one collection of essays. Maybe it's something, Blue Pastures. Some of you might have seen that book. But in there she has an essay about, you know, just how people personify nature, see animals as being cute. And then in that essay she has this line, we, we are none of us cute. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's, that, that way with Dharma, the way that it is, it's not about special. As I was just finishing my walk, walking in to the building, you know, and just catching out of the corner of my eye the view of the lake and, you know, the light going down. And I remember Kamala, I think it was. <laughs> you know, some of you know Kamala Masters, a wonderful teacher. And Kamala is not a scolding teacher. You know, she's, she just has a lot of gentleness and sweetness in her personality. And But I remember her equivalent of scolding uh, at one of the three-month retreats, I think. And uh, she was just suggesting to people something like uh, to notice what the mind is doing when you're gazing at the sunset. At IMS, there's a, it faces west. Some of you know, some of you have been there. faces the main door faces west towards the Berkshire Mountains, and it's up pretty high on a hill, so you often get a nice sunset view, and then if you're there in the fall, you get some colors with that, a lot of old maples and other trees that often have nice colors, crisp air, and uh, you can just see, you know, the yogi mind equivalent of this is cute, or this is beautiful, or this is fantastic or this is amazing. And that's the rock, you know, that wanting to bottle the sunset, wanting to hang on, or like somebody was sharing in the group, you know, there in the sunset, but thinking, oh, tomorrow will be a beautiful sunset too, maybe even more beautiful. So we're not even there, you know, that's the nature of that rock we carry. And Kamala was just suggesting, you know, but it, you could just almost hear the deflation in the room, when she just, because that's the last thing you want to do when the mind is delighting and uh, sort of, in a way, feeding off of beauty, feeding off of, this is beautiful to me. And this is what we do with life, with nature, with beautiful experience, in the same way that we catastrophize unpleasant experiences and really whip them up turn them into a heavy boulder, too. So we want to, you know, as we develop a gratitude, a deeper and deeper gratitude for this path, clinging and the end of clinging, dukkha and the end of dukkha, we want to have a real respect for the directness, the simplicity, and the truthfulness that the Buddha points to. He's really pointing to an independence of freedom that arises due to simplicity and directness and truthfulness, not to a kind of joy that we experience when the mind is uh, idealistic or hoping or relishing, delighting, exuberant or catastrophizing, blaming, you know, because that 
hating and self-righteous anger and catastrophizing, that is its own kind of joy in a relative sense. We love complaining about our aches and pains and politicians and global warming and catastrophizing. Mimi told a really powerful story in the small group today about her mind catastrophizing based on hearing a sound last night and just the painful drama, but probably in the moment there was some really, uh, some real juice, aliveness in the catastrophizing, which is why else would we do it? You know, so if the Buddha says this somewhere in the discourses, if we weren't getting something from the world, from attachment, we wouldn't be attached. So it's not easy. We do, in a relative sense, get some juice. We do, in a sense, squeeze some juice out of experience through attachment. I was explaining this, I think, in one of the small groups, but I can't remember where, where but where, you know, when we anticipate something, desire something, we put a squeeze on the heart. Oh, if only, oh, I can't wait. Tomorrow I'll be going home. I'll be able to find out what Mitt Romney said at the convention. <laughs> <laughs> and whether he got a bump in the polls. <laughs> can't you wait? I mean, I mean, I'm just being revealing. I mean... Uh, my mind will derive some juice from finding out whether Mitt Romney got a bounce in the polls. I mean, it's really... I know from this distance how absurd that is to me. probably is to you. But yet, tomorrow, at some point, despite, you know, my better sense, I'll check. (laughs) (laughs) This is how it is. Mark, you can drop that rock. Yeah. This is the the way the mind works is that exact point that I can drop it is the cause for picking it up. Yeah? It's like knowing that we can put it down, well, I'll put it down later. But let me just check. Or I'll pick it up without attachment. You know, there's all kinds of ways the mind continues to dilute itself. You know. And I'll talk about that later, you know, just about renunciation. And uh, because otherwise it sounds, well, the only way would be to let, to leave everything behind, you know, to go find the proverbial cave, you know, with no internet (laughs) or something. And then, you know, then we'd be fine. But, you know, we already know that that doesn't work. It doesn't work being in the world, and it doesn't work rejecting the world. So we just have to keep taking the blows, you know, that come from when we pick the world back up. We pick up that stone. I got a beautiful Christmas card that somebody painted a long time ago, and on it he had put a, a roomy passage that says it, this is an approximate quote but something like there's a path from lover to love worlds blaze around you the path is hidden but yours there's a path from lover to love like we 
are attached to being the lover. We love love. You know, personally, we love love. We want to be around love. We hate hate. Right? We're the ones who love love and hate hate. Could be a song lyric. (laughs) What do you say, Linda? And the worlds blaze around you. That's all the distractions, you know, because it is intoxicating to love love and to hate hate. It's really intoxicating. And then he says, the path is hidden but yours, like it's here. Some of you know uh, Saida Utejaniya's teachings, and he's really teaching this direct path of wisdom and just knowing what the mind is knowing. And uh, like how we take the self out of the knowing. So instead of looking, you know, he'd often talk about how we look when we're going about our day. Instead of being mindful, we're looking. And how seeing is different than looking. And hearing is different than listening. What did you say? But just hearing. Or sensations being known is different than I'm feeling this. This is what I'm feeling. Thoughts are being known is different than thinking. I'm thinking this is different than thoughts are being known. So this is worlds blazing around us is looking, listening. There's a hunger in looking. There's a hunger in listening. There's a hunger in thinking. We're thinking in order to figure something out, to get somewhere. We're feeling in order to figure something out. Why am I feeling this? What does this mean? So the path is this path of letting go, this path of renunciation. It's really at the heart, you know, this directness is at the heart of how the Buddha taught. This is Ajahn Sumedho from his book, The Mind and the Way. And he's talking here about direct experience. He says, In Theravadan Buddhist practice, these four noble truths are all we contemplate. As we meditate and live more mindfully and more carefully, these truths become very clear to us through direct experience. So when the Buddha was asked what he believed in or taught, he said, I teach suffering, its origin, cessation, and path. The Brahmins, the priests of the day, would ask, Is there a God? What happens to the enlightened one when he passes away? But all the Buddha would say was, All that arises passes away and is not self. There is suffering, it has a beginning and an end, and there is a way out of it. That's all I teach. Brilliant minds, great intellectuals, have all kinds of ideas about ultimate reality and utopian philosophies. They have magnificent systems of reason and logic, but they don't know their own bodies and minds. They haven't learned from the conditions they experience all the time. So this is our invitation. It really comes down to what happens when the mind has sense contact. 
what happens when the mind experiences something. That's what we need to be interested in. There's this mind having sense experience. And to be interested in in that directness, that direct level of experience or reality. Nothing romantic about that. And, lo and behold, there's nothing really that personal about the sensitivity of the mind and body having a sense experience. So this is, you know, this brings us back to the balance we talked about in the middle way between indulging in the sense experience and rejecting it. And this is, you know, the, the nice thing about how the Buddha taught, he put himself right in the same position we were in. In his first Dharma talk, he talked about that same experience of being somebody who wants, being somebody who doesn't want. You know, having sense experience, wanting and not wanting. And finally coming through his own difficult practice, coming to the realization that it isn't about wanting and it isn't about not wanting. It's about understanding, as we talked about last night. Again, Ajahn Chah. Perhaps we may not realize that the Buddha and all of his disciples had this, this kind of wanting. The Buddha, however, reached an understanding of wanting and not wanting. He understood that they are simply the activity of, the mind, of mind, that such things merely appear in a flash and then disappear. These kinds of desires are going on all the time. When there is wisdom, we don't identify with them. We are free from clinging. Whether it's wanting or not wanting, we simply see it as such, as merely the activity of the natural mind. When we take a close look, we see clearly that this is how it is. I bet we would uh, deeply change our lives if we, you know, promise, committed to each other that in the next week we will see, we, we vow to each other to see ten times very clearly when something arises that we don't like, we don't want, and we observe that not wanting, wanting something to go away, we observe it until the not wanting goes away. 
So we're not trying to, whatever it is that we don't want, we're not actually doing anything to get rid of anything. We're simply watching the not wanting. So like you get a little tickle or as a fly on you, you know, and you don't like it and you want it to go away and you're just observing that tickle. Or you want something, you know, you imagine something you want, ice cream or whatever it might be, perfection, samadhi. (laughs) And just to watch the wanting and watch the not wanting until it (coughs) follows the natural cycle where it has arisen in the mind, it's there for a while, and there for a long while if we feed it, if we proliferate around it, but eventually because of not feeding it, because of whatever the supporting conditions that cause it to arise, they're no longer there, it falls away. And then the mind realizes it's not there. So basically what we're seeing is that wanting and not wanting go away without having to do anything. Because the, the hook, of course, is the squeeze we put on our heart when we really want something or really want something to go away. We don't see this clearly, but basically there's that sense that this squeeze won't go away until I do something to make that go away or do something to get what I want. So it feels like compassion to go do something to get rid of what we don't want or to go do something to get what we do want because we think the pain of wanting, of clinging, grasping, doesn't go away without gratification. But it does, in fact, go away because wanting and not wanting is not self. It's like every other aspect of nature. It just comes and goes. And I know what we think because I think this too. Well, but it will come back. You know, sure, it goes away, but it comes back. But whenever it comes back, that too will go away. And the thing is, it's going to come back with even greater frequency if we proliferate around it, if we take it personally, if we invest in it. It becomes more real, in a sense, the more we feed it. So the real question, you know, can we trust letting go? So we're only letting go of this neurotic, painful, heavy attachment to wanting and not wanting. Taking wanting and not wanting to be something very personal, something that can't be let go of, has to be listened to, thought about, proliferated around, believed in, protected. We protect our beliefs. One of the things I notice just with my own mind, my own very uh, deeply conditioned habits of defensiveness, and notice meeting other people and talking about very personal things with them, that uh, we don't, we're, we're really, I and a lot of other of us are very attached to our thoughts about ourselves, (laughs) you know, like about being right about this or whatever, I'm this way. I mean, just think about how many different ways we say to ourselves and others, our friends, this is who I am, you know, it's like this for me, this is what's good for me, 
you know, and we say it with such conviction as if there is a person for whom this is absolutely true, a permanent entity, and this is one of the facts about that entity. And we really cling strongly to these notions, even those of us who do have done a lot of practice. It's just the things we cling to we think are acceptable. Like, you know, one of the funny things we cling to is, you know, I'm a deluded human being, struggling, practicing really hard to be free. You know, we can cling very hard to that idea, wanting to be free. We feel that's an acceptable thing to identify with, wanting to be free. Or the thought that I'll never be free because I have, I have several psychological issues, ADHD, and um, I get depressed, and uh, I had a really difficult upbringing, and I'm getting old, and I'm starting to forget things, and uh, you know, and we can list a lot more things that are all basically true for all of us to some degree, some certainly more than others, and I'm not diminishing you know, the difficulties we've had in life, and they do leave impressions in the mind that are difficult to work with. And the impressions are exactly these heavy stones that we're compelled to carry because we're afraid of putting them down. We're afraid we'll be left with nothing. So again, can we trust letting go And again, like Ajahn Chah says, letting go doesn't mean we don't have to do something. It means we have to practice the method of letting go. We actually have to take it up and practice it. The whole path, you know, is uh, first to develop, or initially at least, to develop a lot of sensitivity. Some Some of you are already really sensitive. A lot of us are less sensitive. Some of us maybe are really dull and callous, but all of us need to be really sensitive. We have to be aware of all the dhammas, all the things that are arising, all the experiences, inner and outer, so we know what to let go of. See, there's no letting go without sensitivity. It's like people who are disconnected say, well, I'm not attached. But we have to be really sensitive so we know how attached we are. Being disconnected in the clouds, it can seem like we're not attached to anything. The Buddha says, there's no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like hunger of heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. some words, Ajahn Sumedho's particularly earthy words on Nibbana, you know, the supreme state of enlightenment. And it's really good for us, you know, in the spirit of non-idealism, you know, this talk is really about gratitude for the path that's about directness, 
and truthfulness and authenticity, not about transcendence or idealism, hopefulness. So in light of that, I'll read Ajahn Sumedho. In another place, he has this great line about Theravada Buddhism being earthworm practice, you know, and how we should really rejoice in our, you know, being the lesser vehicle, you know, and, and some of you know in later schools of Buddhism, Buddhism, uh, Theravada Buddhism was called Hinayana. It's still used quite often, and it literally means the lesser vehicle. <laughs> and Maha Buddhism, I mean Maha uh, Mahayana, is the greater vehicle, you know, and Vajrayana is the diamond vehicle, you know. So there's like this one-upmanship even in Buddhism. <laughs> And see, the problem of being the original is that the later schools can sort of use a title that talks about you. Like, no, we're the great vehicle. You guys, the lesser vehicle. So anyway, he, he has a lot of fun with that sometimes. And here he's talking about Nibbana. He says, in many circles, Nibbana is the common word for anything ecstatic or heaven-like. But actually it means not bound to the conditions of birth and death. It refers to the experience of non-attachment, right? Not bound to the conditions of birth and death, not bound to this, anything here and now. When we are really aware, there's no need, no inclination to identify with the body or the conditions of the mind. These are as they are. This is not a rejection or annihilation of the human body or mental conditions, but it's a way of seeing them as they are. They arise and cease. They begin and end. The clarity of observation, the awareness of the mind, the realization of Nibbana is not all that far, is not all that far away. It's not something that's beyond anyone's capabilities. If you assume you can't do it, then of course you tend to operate from that basic assumption so you never do. But the Buddha said very definitely that this is a teaching for human beings, people with moral responsibility, intelligent beings. So are you one of these? If you aren't, then maybe you better reform. You don't have to be a, a rascal. So Nibbana is not a kind of ethereal state out in the sky or in outer space or in the next life. The Buddha always pointed to the way things are now, to what actually can be known and realized by each one of us within our, limit, within our limitations as human beings, at this time in this place. This is where your reflection and looking into the nature of things needs to be developed so that you can really begin to know this truth rather than just speculate about it or guess or believe or disbelieve you can begin to wisely reflect and penetrate experiencing freedom by not attaching to things. I mean, it's a pretty direct teaching. You know, like the Buddha said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata. He referred to himself as the one thus gone. So that's what Tathagata means. Namely, liberation through non-clinging. The supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered 
by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. So I want to read a little bit more from Ajahn Sumedho, because at the end of the chapter, they have a question that somebody asks him. How would you describe enlightenment? And he gives a wonderful answer. He says, kind of an unorthodox answer. He says, Enlightenment is nothing more than growing up, being a mature being. The perfection of human, of the human karma, is enlightenment. Right? So the perfection of human action is enlightenment. This means becoming mature, becoming, being responsible and balanced, being a moral and wise human being who is no longer looking for someone to love me. He has that in quotes, someone to love me. Many of us can't find love in someone else, so we want God to love us. We say, I believe in a God that loves me. Nobody else does, but God loves me. But that's immature. And he's not saying that God doesn't love people. I just want not to create a debate in your mind. He says, but that's immature. To want love from out there, from someone else. The enlightened being doesn't need to be loved by God or anyone. It's nice to be loved by others, but it's not necessary. Enlightenment is practical. It's something each one of us can realize. We are all capable of moving into the position of being awake. And when we're awake and balanced and wise, we can love. That is the maturing of a human being. When there's wisdom, one naturally relates to others with love. Love is wisdom's natural radiance. You see how this ties back into giving and receiving. It's like we receive, you know, what we really want, like the love from God or enlightenment or whatever we imagine as the end all of human existence by the natural giving. That's when we're not clinging, when we're not grasping, when we're not attached. What's left is wisdom, and love is wisdom's natural radiance, Ajahn Sumedho says. When there is wisdom, one naturally relates to others with love. Love is wisdom's natural radiance. It's a great book, by the way, The Mind in the Way, Buddhist Reflections on Life by Ajahn Sumedho. This is also not a monastery book, so you can get it from Wisdom Publications. So three things to end with that uh, can help us align with non-attachment, with nibbana, with freedom. One is a deepening understanding of renunciation because there's a lot of misunderstanding about renunciation. You know, even misunderstanding about the renunciation that's involved when we go on retreat or the renunciation that's involved when we sit quietly in our room or at Common Ground Meditation Center or where we're letting go of duties and responsibilities. We have to understand that renunciation isn't about a rejection of life. It's a movement into joy. So remember that. Renunciation is a movement into joy. It's not a should. Oh, I should. I've got too many clothes. I should give some of them away. You know, I have too much money. I should give some of it away. I have too many. You fill in the blank. And to be a good Buddhist, to be a good seeker, I should live a more simple life. Now, 
it may be great to live a more simple life. You might find that you find find that a lot more satisfying than the life you're living. So it doesn't mean that you know getting rid of some of your stuff may not be the right thing to do. But the point of renunciation isn't about giving things up. I can't eat meat. I don't drink. Sometimes it feels this way. I have to really watch it. Uh, you know, I'm mostly a vegetarian, have been for a long, long time now. And, uh, you know, I don't drink or use any recreational drugs. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll sip my partner's wine and uh, notice that nice feeling. <laughs> even from a, when you don't have any alcohol, even the taste of wine, you can just feel the effects. Uh, or I mentioned to some of you, I uh, had my colonoscopy a couple of weeks ago, and they gave me... It was the first time I've ever had any of those really good drugs. It was uh, uh, similar to morphine, I think, the, one of the drugs they give you. And, uh, you know, it's just like, oh, yeah, it feels really nice. And, you know, and it could kind of feel like, oh, I'm being good, rejecting all this stuff, you know, I'll just take life as it is. <laughs> you know, and I won't dress it up with drugs or alcohol. I won't dress it up with, you know, meat um, and things I really like and crave. Yeah, exactly. It just leaks to other places. <laughs> you know, it's like chocolate, which is not as satisfying as, like I was walking on the path, many experiences walking about 10 minutes along the driveway. One was, you know, the smell of charred meat. <laughs> Somebody was grilling, and I noticed last night, or I think it was last night, they were some, probably the same people were grilling meat. And, I, and then, you know, how when we're on retreat, the mind's very quick, and it just, you know, on this kind of proliferation, I immediately got, you know, the endlessness of human beings gathering around a campfire, roasting the animal that they've caught. You know, and that community feeling and feeding the body and just what a basic experience of happiness that has been for human beings for such a long time. And being a creature very tied into smell, we smell that and it just it's like that ancestral memory of being around the fire and having killed an animal and now we get to eat it and feed our bodies. And just how satisfying that is for creatures on the edge, you know, you know, really doing the best to survive. And uh, and then, of course, right with it was the oh, poor me, you know. <laughs> I don't get to gather around a campfire and roast meat. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was pretty mindful of all this. And it was just very, it was just very interesting to just see all of that move through the mind. And... Uh, you know, just using those kinds of experiences to help us clarify what renunciation is and what it isn't. It is definitely not, oh, poor me. There's a very interesting discourse in the middle length discourses, number 131, if you want to look it up. <clears throat> it's inch, one of the interesting things is uh, there's three different uh, titles given by Thich Nhat Hanh when he translated it and Ajahn Tanisara when he translated it, and Bhikkhu Bodhi when he translated it. Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation is very interesting because he says, he calls it one fortunate attachment, this particular discourse of the Buddha. Say it again. One fortunate attachment. 
And Ajahn Tanisro calls it an auspicious day. And Thich Nhat Hanh uh, translated um, our appointment with life, or another way he translates it, uh, on a better way to live alone. And it's all about, this discourse is all about renunciation. And it's about a story about a monk, I think his name was Tara, and uh, he was really into living alone, uh, in seclusion, in the forest by himself. He didn't like other monks to be around him. And when he walked into town to get his meal each day, he didn't walk with the other monks as was more common. He would walk separately alone, walk back alone, spend the day alone. And the monks once were, some of the monks were once talking with the Buddha about this monk, you know, how he really likes to live alone. And the Buddha said something like, well, is that right? You know, why don't you go call, you know, this venerable sir, tell him that his teacher would like to talk to him. And then so Tara, venerable Tara comes to see the Buddha later. And the Buddha asks him to describe how he lives and his practice of renunciation, living in seclusion. And the Buddha says, yes, siri, that's definitely a way to live in seclusion, to live alone, to renounce, you know, kind of worldly life, to renounce uh, one's attachment to social relationships, to companionship. But let me tell you a better way to live alone. And then the Buddha goes, and I'll read Ajahn uh, Tanisaro's translation of it. They're all, the translations are the, of the actual discourse are similar, or not that different, at least as the titles are. You shouldn't chase after the past. So this he's, you can compare this to like, you know, all the different ways you might stereotypically think of renunciation, you know, all those bad things you shouldn't do. That you shouldn't, you know, have glittery. Buddhists shouldn't, you know, they should wear black, you know, just simple colors. They shouldn't be wearing pastels <laughs> or adornments. I mean, this is kind of part of the culture, Buddhist culture, so I'm partly jesting, but it's true in a way that, you know, when you hang out in Buddhist culture, uh, especially here in the West, I think maybe even more than in Asia. You know, in Asia they really decorate the Buddhas. But I think maybe because Zen Buddhism was one of the early uh, introductions of Buddhism in the West, we have this sort of Japanese uh, artistic aesthetic that dominates our whole sense of what Buddhism should look like. You know, and so we sort of dress like Zen Buddhists to some degree. We're just affected by the history, you know, how it came to the West. And we like that, and it sort of helps us separate ourselves so we, you know, we can get fluffy about being a Buddhist because, you know, how we present ourselves with our shawls and Birkenstocks and (laughs) I've got my black shirt on, you know, and our relatively short hair and, you know, things like that that tend to be common at least statistically. So anyway, in contrast to that, the Buddha says, this is another way to live alone. You shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. 
whatever quality is present, you see, you clearly see right there, right there, not taken in, unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. Ardently doing what should be done today for who knows, tomorrow death. There's no bargaining with mortality and his mighty horde. Whoever lives thus ardently, relentlessly, both day and night, has truly had an auspicious day, so says the peaceful sage. Or has truly had, or as Thich Nhat Hanh translated, truly knows the proper way to live alone. Or as Bhikkhu Bodhi would say it, you know, truly has one fortunate attachment. So instead of outward forms of renunciation, it's really about the joy of the mind not clinging. So the renunciation is, it's a movement of joy. We're letting go, we're putting down that heavy stone. It feels good. It's not like, uh, you know, maybe Puritans get a bad rap. I don't know, I haven't studied the history enough to see whether they were happy people or not. But, you know, this puritanical, you know, can't do that, can't have that, can't look at that, can't think that. That's not what it's about. The only thing we're letting go of is a heavy stone, which we call attachment or clinging or grasping. When we have preferences, when we're attached, suffering is inevitable. So when we're, you know, out in the world, we're going to be attracted by things, and we're going to be afraid of things, and it's going to trigger the wanting to pick up that heavy stone to get attached. To our likes and dislikes, to take our likes and dislikes personally, there's probably nothing that the mind is more conditioned to do than take our likes and dislikes personally. This is why compassion is so important, because this is a challenge for us. So when we're out in the world and we're liking and disliking things, and there's that tendency to take our likes and dislikes personally. We want to. We need to do this practice in a way that leads to joy. So we have to experience the success, the joy of putting down the stone. We really need to notice when we don't pick up the attachment, or when we put the attachment down, how good that feels. One of the confusing things, like that example I gave um, when I was walking. Down the driveway, and I got near the end, and I started to fantasize about something that was juicy, and I started to get attached and get identified with the attachment, and then I put it down. One of the things that's confusing as soon as I put that down, and I was pretty quick. I mean, it was just a matter of a few seconds, but you know, our minds can do a lot in a few seconds. We can create whole worlds. Um, <clears throat> so I put it down. I dropped it, but. There was the residual feeling of having carried a heavy stone that was still there. So there I am, having dropped the fantasy, but my heart hurt. And what do we want to do when we're not sharp enough, when we're not mindful enough? What do we want to do when we're hurting? 
well, naturally we're going to be compassionate, but if we don't have wisdom with the compassion, then the way we're going to be compassionate is we're going to give the kid the toy again. You know, kid wants to play with the knife. We take the knife away. Don't play with that knife. Are you crazy? You're going to cut yourself. And the kid starts the tantrum. You know, really wanted to play with that knife. It's so shiny, so interesting. And then because we're a dumb parent, we say, okay. (laughs) You know, we give the knife back to the kid. That's what we do. And that's, that's what we do with these things. We put it down, but it's, it hurts to put it down. We miss it. We miss it. So we give it back. We say, oh, go ahead. Think about that. Fantasize about that. Can't be that bad. <laughs> but the whole motivation to pick it up again is that we're hurting. But we're hurting because we put it down. We did the right thing. But it hurts initially to put it down. It's not, it doesn't hurt to put it down. It hurts to have picked it up. And it takes a while for the body to cleanse itself from having gotten clinging, gotten attached. The mind puts it down very quickly, but the body's clinging, the, the effect in the body lasts for a while, and it really confuses us. So you have to remember that when you do drop something, it's going to hurt for a while. You can actually learn to notice the relief, the mental relief of having put it down. But appreciate that the body's going to ache for a while, sting for a while. And, and as soon as we lose our mindfulness, it's going to make a lot of sense to pick it back up. So we have to really appreciate the value of having put it down, the joy of renunciation. We need to know the taste of renunciation as joy. It feels good. When the mind is simple, when the mind is free of attachment, it feels good. Even if energetically in the body we're aching, we've got the ache of craving still vibrating, the ache of terror and fear still vibrating, the ache of anger, the fire of anger still vibrating energetically in the body, we have to notice that the mind is happy, it's peaceful, it's safe, it feels safe, it feels joyful having put it down. Literally, like we've avoided hell. We've avoided danger. You know, like something really scary just happened, but we negotiated it and we avoided harm. And we feel uh, an appropriate satisfaction of having avoided harm. Like we've been a good parent and really taken care of ourselves. That's the feeling. It's like an inner confidence, happiness... You know how exhilarated you are when you've done something dangerous and didn't get hurt? You know, it can last for hours, actually. Like if you had a close call with a, a car accident, you know, and you swerve and you end up, no means hurt, and you can feel so alive for a long time to have avoided, you know, what could have been really terrible. One of the real highs of my life was I was driving, some of you know, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the highway from... I think it's Silver City to Durango in, in western Colorado. Some of you know this road. It's an amazing highway. At night, after a long day, and I'll say, just because it might be useful for you, and a couple beers. <laughs> this is a long time ago. And uh, <clears throat> there I was, and I had been backpacking out in Canyonland, so I'd driven quite a bit. It was late at night. I, thought, I kept thinking, I'll stop and have dinner. I'll stop and have dinner, and it didn't. 
So there I was, I was driving. It was high altitude, so there was still a lot of snow, thankfully for me. And I think I just fell asleep and drove right off <laughs> in my van. I had a van at the time. <clears throat> Luckily, it just flew off, and the snow, because it was uh, April, the snow was pretty soft still. And I just sunk in because it, it was just hundreds of feet down into the ravine. I mean, it was very close. But anyway, so I got out, and turns out everything was okay. But I was so high for having, you know, survived. I mean, not that I was skillful, <laughs> but just just avoiding what could have been easily my death. Or I could have, you know, fallen asleep and hit somebody else and killed them. I mean, any number of things that could have happened to me. So just that uh, we can tune into that exhilaration of the joy of renunciation, the joy of letting go, of not holding. I didn't judge myself. I was just happy. I was just happy. I didn't have any stories about it. And that's, I think, part of the joy. I didn't, you know, it, it was, I really saw it as an impersonal thing and just happy to be free. I wanted to mention a few other things, but we're running out of time. So I'll just briefly mention, you know, just two other ways to align with this freedom. One is appreciating dukkha as a noble truth, like a teacher. So we want to know that renunciation is joy, and we want to know that dukkha is a respected teacher, like a venerable one, somebody we're happy to get down on our knees and put our forehead on the floor for. So when it shows up in our lives, instead of it being a problem, instead of feeling betrayed by life, we can really see this dukkha is teaching me that we're not allowed to have fixed views about anything. That's what dukkha teaches us in a very persistent way, that any fixed views, it just they just don't work. It doesn't make sense to have a fixed opinion, like dukkha is bad, for example, which is, this is the one opinion that we'd get 100% you know, voter approval on. Dukkha is bad. Pain is bad. Right? We all think pain is bad. And I'm not saying pain is good. That would be just another opinion to be attached to. It's really about not having an opinion about pain. Pain is just what it is. It's just that experience that arises for us in a moment. That's what it is. It isn't good or bad. It's like Mary Oliver says. What does she say? <laughs> I want to get it right. She says, we are, comma, none of us, comma, cute. So, dukkha or any experience is neither good nor bad. It's just dhamma. It's just what it is. It's not cute. We don't need to make it a noun or something. It's just dhamma. Dhamma is an experience. It's not a thing, a concept. Like good is a concept, bad is a concept. So appreciating dukkha as our teacher, not a mistake. It shows us the way. That could be another line, Linda. (laughs) Dukkha, it shows us the way. (laughs) Venerable Dukkha, it shows us the way. There we go.
And then the last point I wanted to make is just about uh, developing a relationship with the ordinary. And uh, I, a kind of uh, playful and uh, respectful relationship with, with what's ordinary. So renunciation is joy, dukkha is our venerable teacher, and ordinariness <clears throat> as a... It really teaches us about love, actually. Because mostly love for us is intense, but that's not real love. Real love isn't intense. It's ordinary, and it's natural. It's as natural as anything is natural. So that's where we learn real love with ordinariness. When we can include what's completely ordinary, then we know something about love. When our kids, like if you're a parent and their kid, your kids are being cute, that's not love. You know, that's attachment. Oh, she's so cute. Or her cat or her dog. But when the kid is just being ordinary and we've and it's all transparent. There's no me and you. It's just acceptance, full presence. That's more like love. So I'll just end with a nice poem from, um, who is it from? Marie Howe, The Gate. I don't know this poet, but it's in this nice collection called Risking Everything. Some of you have seen it. It's really a great collection of poems. The Gate by Marie Howe. And I think in this she's talking evidently about her brother's death and how things changed. He, he taught her something about, I'm thinking, something about the extraordinariness of ordin- what's ordinary. So the poem goes this way. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man, but grown himself by then, done at 28, having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass he would ever rinse under the cold and running water. This is what you've been waiting for, he used to say to me. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, holding up my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, sort of looking around. (laughs) I'll read that again. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man but grown himself by then, done at 28, having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass he would ever rinse under the cold and running water. This is what you've been waiting for, he would say to me. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, holding up my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, sort of looking around. So let's just sit for a few minutes, or a few seconds, rather. (laughs) 